Support for I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere comes from MX Publishing. With the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world, new novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wessex Press, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. And from listeners like you, who support us through Patreon. Bonus material, thank you gifts, and more await at patreon.com slash I Hear of Sherlock. I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 249, Remembering Nicholas Utekin. I hear of Sherlock everywhere since you became astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. A podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger streeter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Hello and welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Walder. And Bert, do you remember Nick Utekin? I do remember Nick Utekin. I remember him very, very fondly. And I'm delighted that we're going to have an opportunity to talk about Nick and about his many great contributions to the world of Sherlock Holmes today. Yeah, it is, um, it's unfortunate that uh, back in August of this year, uh, Nick passed away at the age of 70, uh, leaving a great hole in the Sherlockian universe. His contributions to um, the literature of the subject, shall we say, were profound. And uh, I think it will be quite some time before we see another of his ilk. Well, you know, you you may be right, but I think that there's a lot also that we want to celebrate in terms of thinking about Nick. And there's a lot that can be learned in talking about his approach to life and his approach to Sherlockian scholarship and just his energy. You know, he's one of these people who's whose loss is made even more tragic by the fact that uh, he was so vibrant and alive and so full of the moment every time you had the opportunity to talk with him. And I suppose that's some of the things we'll get into today. Absolutely. So we'll just uh, pause here for quick station identification. Of course, this is I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. You can find the show notes for this episode at iHose.co slash iHose249. My goodness, this is the 249th show. That means our big 250th celebration is coming up in the very next episode. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. Now, we do have uh, an occasion for you to celebrate with us as a Patreon supporter. We offer additional content and ad-free versions of the show on patreon so for as little as a dollar a month you can become a patreon supporter of i hear of sherlock everywhere just go to patreon.com slash i hear of sherlock or follow the patreon link in our show notes of course in our show notes you can also find your way to other places on the sherlockian web whether it's uh, to our sponsors or to some of the books that we may mention in this episode, and of course, previous episodes that are naturally going to come up because both Nick Utekin and our guest, Steve Rothman, have been on the show before, and you may want to go back and listen to their episodes. Steve Rothman has edited the Baker Street Journal since 2000 and he holds the Two Shilling Award. 
He writes and talks about the works of Christopher Morley, and he edited The Standard Doyle Company, Christopher Morley on Sherlock Holmes, as well as A Remarkable Mixture, award-winning articles from the Baker Street Journal. He co-edited with Nicholas Utekin, the former editor of the Sherlock Holmes Journal, To Keep the Memory Green, Reflections of the Life of Richard Lancelin Green, 1953-2004. to Steve delivered the 2008 Cameron Hollier Memorial Lecture to the Friends of the Arthur Conan Doyle Collection of the Toronto Public Library. A dedicated book collector since the age of 12, he's also president, apparently for life, of the Philo Biblon Club of Philadelphia, as was Dr. Rosenbach before him. Steve Rothman, welcome back to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Thank you very much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, for those folks who may have forgotten or who may not have heard the other episodes, you were with us first on episode eight, all the way back at episode eight in uh, season one back in 1997. And as a matter of fact, you were on with Nick Utekin for that episode. And then you joined us again for episode 76, where you talked about Out of the Abyss with Bob Katz and Andy Solberg. It was the BSI Press publication there from, uh, I think it was the Empty House Manuscript. And then most recently, you were on famed episode 221, talking about the Baker Street Journal. So, glad to have you back, although it is with bittersweet news that we invite you back this time to reflect on the life and Sherlockian or Holmesian uh, works of Nick Utekin. So, I'm going to switch this up a little bit. You know, in every episode, we ask our guest how they first met Sherlock Holmes. Well, I want to understand how you first had an acquaintance with Nick Utekin. Ah, well, um, first had knew his name from reading um, the ancient, ancient, ancient Shades of Sherlock, um, which was a cyclo-styled zine, we'd call it nowadays, um, put out by youths, the young Christopher Redman, the young Andy Peck, the young S.E.D., S.E.B. Dallinger, etc., um, and Bruce Kennedy. And I was just a subscriber. Nick, Nick was a contributor. And I think I first saw his name there in 1968. Um, so that's when I first noticed his name. And then it, I started seeing it in the Baker Street Journal. I wasn't subscribing to the Sherlock Holmes Journal in those days. And, um, but I think we may have corresponded once or twice over the years. But what happened was when I became editor of the Baker Street Journal, I decided I should um, have some sort of correspondence with editors of other journals, particularly that of the Sherlock Holmes Journal. So I emailed Nick, he emailed back, and we did some back and forth, and it was polite and uh, possible, and we began a friendship this way, and then... When Richard Lancelin Green died in, gosh, was that, uh, 2004, um, we did a lot of, course, there was a lot of emails flying everywhere about Richard and Richard's death. And, um, Nick and I got together and he came up with the idea, um, or at least first articulated the idea that we should do some sort of festrift for Richard and, I got the lucky job of selling this to uh, Mike Whalen, um, and we came up with the idea of doing a um, international imprint, the Quartering Press, which we shared with the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, and who was the co-publisher on this. And Nick and I co-edited the book. And it was lots of fun working with Nick. It was horrible having to do this about Richard, who was a good friend of both of ours. And that's really, after that, it really grew because we got in the habit of emailing each other quite often. And Nick would write to me in the morning because he wasn't the earliest riser. And I, I'm up 5.30 or 6 every morning. So that's 11 at the latest. 
in Oxford. And so I would respond, and so it would go throughout the day. And sometimes a week or so might go by without us writing, but basically we had email all the time. But I didn't actually get to meet the man until 2004, after Richard's death, when I went to, um, well, my mother calls it the world's longest shiver call. I, I went to see uh, Richard's <laughs> sister, Scylla, who lived in a different suburb of Oxford. And um, Janice and I were there, and uh, Nick came over, and we had dinner with Nick and um, Scylla and her husband. And that was the, really the first time. And then I didn't meet him again until several years later when he finally came for the first time to a Baker Street uh, journal dinner after having been an irregular for over 30 years. Wait, he had never been to a BSI dinner before? Nope. 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 Julian gave him his shilling, uh, but he had never been to one. I think he got a shilling in 75. I might be wrong about that, but I believe, no, 73. He got a shilling in 73, just turned 23. Wow. Um, and so, but he, he never got to go to that. He'd been in America a good bit. His parents, his father was teaching at Penn State and then at um, Stanford. And his, after his parents divorced, he would often come and visit his father in Penn State. But he hadn't been to America. He met various Sherlockians, including ones that he had worked with on Shades of Sherlock, um, in his travels around. But the dinner it was a first time, so I have stories about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we'd love to hear some of those stories. You know, Nick, for our listeners, Nick was a very unusual, even among the unusual cadre of people who are interested in Sherlock Holmes. He was unusual because of his very early start. You know, you just mentioned he was inducted into the Baker Street Irregulars when he was quite young. But even younger, in 1966, he was inducted into the Sherlock Holmes Society of London. And I think he was something like 16 at the time, wasn't he? Yes. He was just 16. And he even uh, contributed to the Sherlock Holmes Journal for the first time in 1966 with a letter. Um, so, yes, he was very young when he joined the society. Uh, you know, some had joined it younger. I didn't get around for several years because it seemed expensive to me. Uh, so, yes, he, he knew he wanted to be a Sherlockian. His middle name was Rathbone. Because his grandfather was a grandfather was a first or second cousin of Basil's. Really? Um, yes. His, his mother's maiden name was Rathbone. That is, I never knew that. All the years I knew Nick, I never realized that connection there. Well, it it, it was clearly written in the stars and written in blood. Well, so Nick had this very young um, introduction and induction into these storied societies. When did he first take the helm as editor of the Sherlock Holmes Journal? 76. 76. So he, he um, and that was, that was a post he held for how long? 30 years. 30 years. 30 years. Wow. Wow, that's un that's unparalleled in our little it hobby. It is. I mean, there might be somebody who's you know done a a small uh, science publication for that longer, longer. Didn't doesn't have the heft, whatever it is, of the Sherlock Holmes Journal. And it was amazing. By the end, he decided it had certainly been long enough. Yeah, I and remember what he was writing to me about it. <laughs> And I'm I'm interested in that thought process, Steve, because you've been the editor of the Baker Street Journal since 2000. Um, you've obviously seen your share of editing uh, fun and woes in all of that. What was what was his mindset behind the "It's been long enough"? Was he was he seeing 
uh, too little in terms of variety of scholarship? Was he uh, looking to do other things? What, what was he thinking about? I think he was a little tired of it and probably looking to do other things. Also, I think he was being pushed to do a little bit more of the actual sort of editing stuff on his computer and he wasn't he never was real comfortable with doing some of that um he never learned how to uh center a word on the page or uh something else it was a matter of hitting space over and over and over again i can tell you this i've looked at enough of his manuscripts uh, and um i think it was just becoming a little bit of a a nuisance b life had changed um and he was just looking to um, hopefully find something else oh that's fair and it, it gave him an opportunity to um to contribute to the literature on the subject in other ways not just as an editor but as um as an author as well. Absolutely. And I have a list that Nick made of his uh, home museum, as he puts it, writings, uh, of which there are over 620 some. And you can see that in, by the end of 2006, when he left his editing chair, um, including his various book reviews and editorials and things like this for the show Journal, he had done 412 things so in the next 25 years he did another third so half again as much as he had done um in the previous 40 years so wow he's a very very busy boy well that's yeah that's indicative of nick you know he had a great style and a great approach and even from his very earliest days he was Desperately curious, and there there was never, in my experience of Nick, there was never much of a gap between his curiosity and action. <laughs> he, he would he would you know just jump into things. You'd get an email saying, hmm, "So I'm thinking about blah blah blah. What do you know?" And because Nick could Google as well as the rest of us, he always seemed to be happy to have me um, be his researcher and. I knew sometimes when he was throwing out a leading question to me that he really just wanted me to look something up. And I would. I'd fall for it every single time. And <laughs> happily, we'd come back an hour or two later with this and this and this and this and say, do this, Nick. Here it is. Look this up. You know, and, and since I had done the really hardest part of the work in, in, in setting him off, then he did the even harder part of working, reading the stuff and digesting it and coming up with something. And it worked well, and we would work together this way a lot. Mm. As, you, as you think across his, um, his, his list of um, contributions, where do you think his strength really lies you know aside from the the research element that you just talked about as as a writer or as an editor where where were his superpowers his superpowers i think were realizing places often obvious places but places where we others hadn't really thought so much about who has been written about or who's been talked about like this, his last piece, his final piece, which was on J. Finley Christ, he started sort of wondering about it and collecting some of Christ's little things, some of which are done on horrible, horrible paper and are falling apart as you look at them. And then he started wondering just how many of these things are there and, you know, who was J. Finley Christ and really looking into it and finding, he found wonderful things. And, discovered, you know, all this stuff and gave us this long list of um, publications. I think he's changed. He certainly changed my uh, thoughts about uh, Christ's work, because up till then, I mostly thought of him as the man who came up with, in my mind, the very annoying four-letter abbreviations for the stories. 
But now I think of him as a very serious scholar and a very funny one. Yeah, and they, um, in some ways, a Pied Piper of the Sherlockian movement early on. Um, and that I, I was um, particularly struck by that entry in the Baker Street Journal because I received my copy of the journal, gosh, maybe a week or so before Nick passed away, and uh, was just marveling at it because it is almost, it, it's a very lengthy article, and it is almost long enough to have been considered a candidate for a Christmas annual, I would think. Was had, that- Nick, had Nick not gotten ill, I would have pushed him to keep mm. expanding it. Uh, as it was, he sent it to me a few weeks after he got his diagnosis in December and uh, said, see what you can do. And I did. Um, and then we you know, were playing with it back and forth, and he pushed me quite rightly to make sure that it was in uh, the spring issue or summer issue, whatever it was, um, so that we could he could see it. And I can tell you that he did. He held a copy of the journal in his hands, um, and because I flew one out to him, and he, he, Annie, his wife, wasn't sure whether he truly appreciated what it was, but he held it in his hands, and she read it to him over you know, the next several days. And it made him very happy. Oh. So. Um, that's excellent. Well, you know, I want to get back to, in a minute, I'd like to get back to some of the stories that you mentioned you had about dinners and Nick. But but just to sort of continue the conversation about his writing and about what made him, one of the many things that made Nick Utekin special. When you look at his papers, his body of work, one of the things that really is unique is about the range of subjects and the deft way he handled each one. You know, in the Sherlockian world, you have people who become fascinated with a couple of characters. They become fascinated with a couple of events or scenes. They become interested in the Royal Navy. They become interested in 221B. But Nick was interested in everything. And so when you look at his his work, you know, you find essays about the location of 221B based on an analysis of the placement of the street lamps. <laughs> you find uh, an assessment of Professor Moriarty, a couple of assessments of Professor Moriarty based on various categories. You find his thoughts about how was Holmes grieving for Irene and did that affect his behavior in a couple of the later cases. Um, you know, we on our podcasts have reviewed his work about the politician, the lighthouse, and the trained cormorant, and his linking of that to actual historical events about anthrax in Scotland. And um, Watson, you know, he would also step back and say, you know, what is it about these stories that are so compelling and grabbing? And what are the different methods that Watson uses to get us into each case? And he, and he wrote about that. Um, you know, what stands out in, in your conversations with him? What, uh, you know, what do you, what, how, you know, what's your sense of all of that? I think you're absolutely right, Bert. It, all sorts of things would grab his attention. Sometimes we would be talking about things. When, after one of the first, the recent mass shootings, uh, he got very upset. Nick was a very, very, very liberal guy. Um, and he, he got very upset about this and said, why are you so crazy in your country? And I said, well, look, it's the Constitution, not how I would read this Constitution, but it's how the Supreme Court reads the Constitution. So um, this is how it is, and we kind of have to live with it unless we could uh, pass and change the amendments, which is not going to happen in the current state. But then he wrote a, a book about, um, he wrote an article about the use of weaponry and in the canon and how Holmes would have been entirely was entirely opposed to guns and things like this. So he would just do this if it was if he felt it was necessary. And sometimes I would say to him, no, this is not going to make some people happy. And I don't care, this is how they should think. Because <laughs> Nick was a 
I, I think I already said this, a forthright guy. Nick never, never hid his feelings about things. Capital, <laughs> yes, here we are. Capital cases, Sherlock Holmes, guns, and capital punishment. Mm. But, yeah, you seldom, you seldom had to ask Nick. So, Nick, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> he volunteered on his first dinner, first time in, in New York for the dinner. We went out on Thursday night with a group of Sherlockian friends, one of whom was Jerry Watts, the late Jerry Watts. Jerry was the loveliest man, as you both remember. Kind, sweet, really cared about his friends, really cared about people. He was also a fierce libertarian, a strong supporter of the Libertarian Party, gave them endless money and things like this. How this jived with being a physician, I don't know. And, you know, Jerry would often want to get in arguments with me about this, and I would say to him, I love you, Jerry. We're not going to talk about this. I'll want to slap you. But, so I warned Nick before we went out to dinner, I said, Jerry's a lovely man. You cannot talk to him about anything having to do with politics. Ha, 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 did I make a mistake? Uh, so, Jerry is between, is on one side of Nick, I'm on the other side of Nick, and we're at a large round table, and I can hear after a point that somehow they're talking about um, government medicine practice, socialized medicine, if you will, and they're going on, and Nick, Nick, who, like many uh British men and women of his generation, and even now, the National Health Service is a religion. It's not just a practice. And he was going on and on about it. And Jerry is going on, and I am, after a while, because it's getting louder and louder and taking over the whole conversation, so I slam my fist into Nick's thigh. He turns to me, he said, why did you do that? I said, I told you not to talk politics. He said, right, and goes right back to it. I slam him again. He said, Wait, why are you doing that? Stop that. It hurts. <laughs> and so I, so on. And um, he didn't stop. And neither one won. And I'm not surprised. But this is how mm. it is. You know, after Mr. Trump was um, elected president, he said, how could this happen? He said, look at the numbers. I said, we have something called the Electoral College. And this is what decides. It's not the people who decide. He said, really? I said, look at the Constitution. He said, oh, coming back to me. I see. That's stupid. I said, yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'll bet even after that exchange, Nick and Jerry were still quite chummy and shoulder to shoulder in terms of uh, Sherlockians together. Absolutely. They love Sherlockians. They love Sherlock Holmes. And they were both lovely, lovely people. And uh, just they had very different politics. And <laughs> yeah. well, but you know that was that's just so indicative of Nick because he's he's always struck me as one of these people whose curiosity, which manifested itself in Sherlockian things, must have been a characteristic of him ever since he was one or two years old or just verbal, because he seemed to have built a world and, his, and a, a very strong moral, personal moral platform about how things should be. And he was one of these people that if you tell him, you know, I don't want you to talk about that, what he would hear is, I challenge you to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and he would say, okay, happy. yes, exactly. I'd be happy to talk about that. And he was a very verbal person. Words, I think words were... All of it. I would be surprised if he actually came out of the womb talking. Um, <laughs> and this is why his, his final illness was so cruel, because it was a glioblastoma, which is a, a brain cancer, and one of the effects it has is taking away your ability to speak properly at first, and then really speak almost at all. And so he he lost his words, which is, I can't imagine anything cooler to happen to the man. Yeah, if uh, fate has any irony, I think that's what's going to happen to Bert and me someday. <laughs> um, now, Nick, I remember corresponding, uh, Nick, Steve, I remember corresponding with you about Nick after his diagnosis. And at one point, 
you had mentioned that he was going through his library and, uh, as you put it, saying goodbye to old friends. What did you mean by that? He was rereading all sorts of books. He would say to Annie, look for, say, Baring Gould Sherlock Holmes of Baker Street or something. You know, it's a, you know, try to describe what it looked like and where it was. And he was already, he wasn't always able to say what he wanted. Um, and so it was hard for her, but, you know, and he would be frustrated because he couldn't find it or, or do it, but she would find the books and then he would read that book and then he would go to another, you know, his wife and, and his son both told me sort of that they were jealous in a way of Sherlock Holmes because he was taking so much of Nick's time this winter and early spring, um, cause this is what he was going back to more than anything else. He was just spending his time reading what he wrote, what others wrote, uh, just going over and over the things and trying his best to understand, I suppose, and know what was uh, Sherlockian. It was very interesting to, to see, but I guess it was the thing that was most, in many ways, most beloved outside of his family and the most beloved inanimate object, let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know he cared uh, deeply about his family and it's it's bittersweet isn't it that you know he he basically uh was given this terminal diagnosis knowing that there was a finite amount of time that was left uh, of this world for him and well, as there is for all of us the difference is many of us don't know in general terms when our expiration date is if i can put it uh, bluntly he knew he had a set number of months left to live and he decided what he needed to do with his time during that period so i don't think for anyone who knew nick uh, who you know loved research who loved reading who loved talking um i don't think it's any surprise that he would have surrounded himself thusly absolutely now uh, this may be going a little bit outside of your uh, sphere of knowledge. Maybe it's not. We'll test it out. Um, the other thing that was important to Nick that he truly identified with down to his core was Oxford. And he was a uh, the, the consummate defender uh, of Sherlock Holmes went to Oxford. And he had this lovely house in Oxford, uh, Highfield Farmhouse, I, I believe, you know, one of those houses that has a name. Um, what can you tell us about his association with Oxford and with with his home? Well, Nick's, Nick's father, uh, I'm just going to say it's Sergei, because um, I can't do how proper Russian pronunciation. Nick's father had um, managed to escape Stalin's Russia and ended up in Oxford in the 30s of, during the war and um, was a scholar. So Nick spent, grew up in Oxford, was born in Oxford. His grandfather had gone to University College Oxford on his mother's side. His mother had gone to one of the colleges in Oxford. And so this is where he was actually educated up till the equivalent of high school, at which point his father had a post up in Glasgow, and he was there, but he returned to Oxford and pretty much lived there for the rest of his life. There were times in London and, and things got early in his marriage, but he was in Oxford. He was proud of being in Oxford. He was delighted even knowing that the nursing home where he spent his last month was built, was the one that had been built on the grounds where his uh, primary school had been. Uh, in Oxford. And he was proud of getting the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine against COVID <laughs> because it was the Oxford vaccine. Uh, if you visited him and many Americans visited him, he would happily take you on a tour of Oxford that was an excellent tour. And since he was, was MA Oxon, had, had entrance to all the colleges and we could march through them, he would just wave the little card and it was a lovely thing and show all his sights. And I would share stories about things where he was wrong, but, um, <laughs> but he, he loved Oxford truly. It was like a member of his family and 
that we brought this up would make him happy. So now, well done, Scott. If memory serves correctly, I believe young Sherlock Holmes was filmed partly at Oxford. Was Nick involved in that at all? I don't think so. I'm not positive. He was consulted on a number of various things. Like, I know at one point the people who were doing the Morse things consulted him and he did various things about Sherlock Holmes and Oxford. Well, he, when the Sherlock Holmes Society of London did their, one of their weekends in Oxford, he um, was very involved in the planning. This is the only one of their uh, trips that he had ever been on, but he did that. He did a reissue in the revision of his Christmas annual about Knox uh, for that visit, which was also done then yet again for as the third volume in one of our the Baker Street Regulars books, limited edition sets, which meant I had to read this thing three times through for and see it through publication. That's love for uh, but, but yeah, he, he left the place. The MX Book of New Sherlock Holmes Stories is the world's largest collection of new traditional Sherlock Holmes stories with all author royalties going to the Undershaw School for Children with Learning Disabilities. And as of the end of June 2022, these authors have raised over $100,000 for Undershaw. That donation, which continues to rise, has been gifted from the royalties of all of the stories coming from the MX book of New Sherlock Holmes stories. The deep partnership between Undershaw and MX Publishing has spanned a number of years and has witnessed many changes. Undershaw, of course, was the house built for Arthur Conan Doyle in order to accommodate his wife's health requirements and it's where he lived from, with his family from 1897 to 1907. While he was there, he would have worked on The Return of Sherlock Holmes and The Hound of the Baskervilles. And that continues now with the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories, now up to part 23, under the capable editorial guide of David Markham. Congratulations to our friends at MX Publishing on reaching the $100,000 mark in their support of Undershaw. As you continue to show interest in the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories, MX Publishing will continue to be able to support Undershaw and all that it offers, those beacons of the future. Check out the MX book of new Sherlock Holmes stories at mxpublishing.com. So, Stephen, um, so what are your, if somebody were to ask you to, to, to like me, <laughs> to tell them your favorite Nick Utekin story, um, you know, what, what comes to mind? You know, what do you think really sort of distills the, the experience of talking and working uh, with Nick? Ah, well, we've talked about his endless energy and doing things. On the other hand, he was also could be very stubborn about some things when he was working on the Knox publication and he wanted information. I would say to him, Nick, you live in Oxford. One of the greatest libraries in the entire world is 20 minutes from your door. All you have to do is go to the Bodleian. They have the books. They have what you want. I don't want like to use the Bodleian. I said, you have to use Bible. No, 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 no. And so, and he wanted to, for the Knox thing, he wanted to do and did a very warm edition of the early publications of um, Knox's essay. But he, one of the earliest publications was in Blackfriars Magazine. Now, Blackfriars Magazine is put out by the, the Dominicans. So I said, well, the Dominicans have a, not a college, but a house in Oxford. I said, I bet they have the magazine. Why don't you go there? Because he was refusing to go to London. He was refusing to go uh, to the Bible. And yes, he went there and he was a happy boy. But I had to push him sometimes in the silliest ways um, <laughs> to do things. 
Other times it would be just endless energy and words would be pouring forth. We would talk about something one day and a week later I'd get 2,000 words about this and, and asking what I thought about what he had written. <laughs> and he did little publications about his family and he did little things about all sorts of things for the society. He was just a busy man, but he would sometimes just refuse for reasons I like. He didn't like using the Bodley, and I guess this is a result of something as an undergraduate. But um, it was run by libertarians. Uh, possibly. <laughs> oh, no, librarians. I'm sorry. No. I got that wrong. Oh. Uh, <laughs> That's interesting, though. I wonder what he objected to about the Bodleian. It must have been something administrative, you know? Well, they are slow, and you do have to mm. wait for your books. Um, on the other hand... It's on the other hand, it's the Bodleian for crying out loud. Exactly. If I lived in Oxford, I'd be there saying. all the time. Uh, I, what I said, I said, if I was M.A. Oxon, I would basically just set up tent. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Holy cow! Well, and and this is this is interesting because to me it's indicative of uh, what we talked about earlier with respect to Nick's personality. Very strong-willed, very strong opinions. And Steve, I have to wonder, you know, working with uh, Nick in in an editorial capacity when he was authoring something for you and you were the editor. He's been an editor. He's got very strong opinions about the, the topics that he's working on. He can certainly pump out a lot of words. Uh, what kind of subject was he like in terms of managing uh, his work from an editorial perspective? Mostly it went very, very well, Scott. Sometimes he would object to my... Um, Changing his spelling, and I said, "It's an American magazine." Sorry, Nick. <laughs> your, your U's, your U's are gone. Your S's are out of here. There's Z's. There's no U's. Um, and and he and to my American punctuation, but he understood. You know, ultimately, he kind of felt the one thing we never got to a meeting of the minds over was the use of the Oxford comma. <laughs> a, I believe in the Oxford comma. I think it's necessary for understanding, but I know that um, it hasn't been in the UK for, say, since after the war. Um, but Nick was brought up not to use it and opposed it vigorously. And so... You know, I think I think I figured it out. I, I think I figured it out. I mean, it seems ironic that a guy from Oxford would not like the Oxford comma, but I think the uh, guidelines and rules of the Bodleian Library were written with Oxford commas. <laughs> no. No, actually, actually, what you're missing is that in the UK, it's called the Cambridge comma. <laughs> Had it been, I would have understood entirely. Right, it wouldn't have surprised me. Um, so. But no, really, we worked together very well. And when we did co-edit something, say, uh, the book on Richard Lancelin Green, it, we divvied up the different essays, and then we would both work on the others afterwards. Nick's approach to um, editing was sort of slash and burn. He would march through a manuscript, and just whole pages would go, or paragraphs would go. And I would just get something... Um, that would just be largely marked out. And mine is a much more surgical, as both of you know, since I've mm -hmm. you both, uh, mine is a much more surgical approach and slower and methodical taking a word here or a phrase there and trying my best to mold something else. But we worked together really well, and it, it worked. And I think to both our delights. And so I'm happy to say that end. That's lovely. When you think about the totality of Nick's work, Steve, if you had to pick one that you would read again and again to your delight, 
Is is there any one particular title that comes to mind? Maybe the Paget book mm. uh, that he did. Possibly the Milvertonians. The Milvertonians was yeah. a wonderful thing because there he took something that was largely unknown. You know, some of us had some of those pamphlets around and we knew that they existed, but Nick was able to dig this out and find this stuff and it was great. And I was really happy with what he was able to find. And it took there again, it was another one of these things with pushing and a few leads had to go unfollowed because the, the people who were around weren't willing to help us enough. But uh, what can you do? But that and the uh, Christmas annual that he did with Matthias on um, the Baker Street sitting room show was was wonderful. I found so much stuff and you almost had a feeling that you had visited the fair and you understood the agonies that were going through to set this thing up and dealing with the horrors of that were Adrian Conan and Doyle. <laughs> yeah, we should we should tell our listeners that some of the things we're referring to here, the Milvertonians of Hampstead were a UK science society that had flourished and then faded away. But Nick, through the research and so on, um, produced a book that preserved their history, that preserved their writings, and told the story of the scion, which was fascinating. And the Paget portfolio, of course, is the collection of virtually all of Sidney Paget's illustrations, using original art wherever possible, brought together in one portfolio. And the Baker Street uh, Journal Christmas Annual was all about the great exhibition 221B exhibition that began in the UK in the 1950s that kicked off a resurgence of interest in um, in Sherlock Holmes and that involved a recreation of the sitting room uh, of uh, 221B. So those are some of the major literary things that Nick produced. Yeah, this is why we keep Bert around, you see. Ah, well, I thought it was just because he's ornamental. That mustache. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's many reasons. It varies on any given day. Steve, as you think about all of the things that were swirling around in Nick's head and um, Nick's project plans, is there anything or things that you wished he were able to get to before he passed on? Not sure, not sure, because poor Nick, right before the pandemic, had had a cataract removed from one eye, and then, because of the pandemic, was unable to get the second cataract removed until towards the end of last year, 2020. And so, was going around monocular for all those months, um, just having one eye that he could sort of see out of the other, you know, just with one lens pushed out of his eye and a patch over the other and had to be a mess. So he wasn't doing as much of the work as he might've hoped to have been doing or thinking about. And I'm not sure. I, I know that he must've had other plans, but, um, and possibly I will mine through, our correspondence to see if I can ever figure out what they were yeah. and throw them at some other energetic person. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> well, that's, and, and I, I am not grasping at that brass ring by any chance, but um, that leads to an obvious follow-up question. Who do you think is the natural heir to uh, this level of activity and curiosity and uh, content generation that uh, Nick Utekin left us with? There are probably several people. Uh, Ira Matetsky has certainly put out some wonderful things um, that are more from his interests, which are largely royally, um, but he's discovering things in copyright and publications that 
I, as an old bibliographer, find fascinating. Um, Mark Jones is digging into Conan Doyle in marvelous ways, and his podcast is uh, probably rivaling your own. I know I'm not supposed to say that here, but it's after all a different sort of subject since he's entirely on Doyle more than on Sherlock. And I'm always being surprised with who can come up with what. Uh, Mark, Mark Alberstadt, the editor of the Canadian Homes, has been pushing out wonderful articles on Conan Doyle and sports, something that was very near and dear to um, Nick's heart, the sports part. Mm -hmm. I, he could never understand the fact that I have no interest in anything played with the ball. Um, <laughs> and just shook his head. And yet he also was, couldn't understand why I understood the rules of cricket, which is largely because Philadelphia is um, the most serious cricket playing uh, city in North America. <laughs> mm. Mm. Now, Nick had uh, some cricket memorabilia of interest, if I recall correctly, as part of his collection. Well, no. Wait, I think what you're remembering oh. is that um, Nick was very instrumental in having uh, Conan Doyle's cricket bat, which had been in Lausanne in um, Switzerland is part of the uh, Conan Doyle chalet uh, repaired and then placed in the Cricket Museum at Lourdes ah, in London. Right, right. And so he had been approached about it and uh, did all this sort of research and then um, helped raise the money for the repair and um, make the connections so that it's now proudly displayed at the museum because it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to exist, but it was completely broken, shattered bat. It, and now it um, looks used but glorious. Um, who would know you could repair a cricket bat or yeah. a baseball bat, I suppose. <laughs> Beautif beautifully restored. I, mm -hmm. I, I, now I remember what I wanted to ask you. You know, one of the things we haven't mentioned in this discussion which I think would be of interest to our listeners, is what Nick did professionally. You know, we focused very appropriately on his the world of Sherlock Holmes, but but our listeners might ask, well, gee, <laughs> so what did this guy do from 9 to 5? This guy did from 9 to 5, or probably more often from 5 to 11, or something like this. This guy was with the BBC for most of his career. Uh, he started with Oxford Broadcasting Company, Oxford Radio, but with, with in London with the BBC as a writer, a producer, uh, a broadcaster at times, though mostly he was behind the microphone and you would just hear this voice at the end saying, and produced by Nick Gutekin. Um I can't do a radio voice, uh, but this is what he did. And I know he was considered very, very good at what he did and um, held in high esteem by his colleagues at the BBC, and I have, if you've heard any of his recordings in connection with any of the Sherlock uh, stuff, because he produced and introduced a number of the Sherlockian radio recordings and things like this, you'll hear Nick's voice, which was a wonderful radio voice, and um, lively and entertaining, and um, with an oomph uh, to it to get it across like you guys, not like mine. Uh, and, so. <laughs> and, you know, I'll never forget the irony after having Nick on, I think it was that episode 155 where he talked about the pageant portfolio. When afterward, he asked if we could send him a CD recording of the show, which showed you exactly how unfamiliar he was with computers. <laughs> mm-hmm. When I visited Nick, I was looking at his computer. He said, what are you looking at? I said, well, Nick, the way you always are talking about it, I thought it had to be steam-powered. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Steampunk Nick. Well, um, I'm, I'm conscious of the time here, and I'm 
you know, certainly aware that you could probably go on talking about Nick for as long as anyone would let you. Um, what closing thoughts can you share with us, Steve? Um, when Nick got his diagnosis, I, he asked me uh, to make sure that I continued to write to him, even if he wasn't writing back. And I did. I kept that promise every day, and I wrote to him. And in the last month since he's dead, I have this gap in my life in that I'm not writing to him, and I wish I could. Well, Steve Rothman from the Baker Street Journal, longtime professional colleague and friend of Nick Utekin, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Bert. Someone who's active in the world of Sherlock Holmes for so many years, as Nick Utekin was, and someone, someone who is so unique is not easy to capture in 45 minutes or so of, of conversation. But it was, uh, it was great to make a start anyway at doing that. And I imagine that in the weeks and months ahead, there'll be more opportunities, more publications, more events, more options for for looking back at nick and his contributions oh without a doubt i mean he is one of the giants of the sherlockian and holmesian world and uh, we're lucky to have had him with us for as long as we did and for him to have left such an impact on us uh, you know i thought it might be worthwhile too to just uh, grab this paragraph of uh, brief biography from the back page or the back cover I should say, of the complete Paget portfolio from our friends at Gasogene Books and Wessex Press. According to his bio, Nicholas Utekin joined the Sherlock Holmes Society of London in 1966, was invested in the Baker Street Irregulars in 1975, and began a 30-year editorship of the Sherlock Holmes Journal the following year. He also rejoices in being a master copper beach smith of the Sons of the Copper Beaches, he worked in radio broadcasting as a producer and presenter primarily for the BBC, specializing in live news and current affairs programming. Now retired, he lives in Oxford in Great Britain with his wife Annie and enjoys being surprised by the careers of their two sons and the antics of their two grandchildren. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote 22 novels. The one he thought his best is an adventure story of knights and chivalry. 20-year-old Alan Edrickson travels the world encountering bullies, con artists, thieves, a damsel in distress, and two men who become his closest friends. Together they join the White Company, archers and fighters led by the gallant Sir Nigel Loring. Will our hero win the hand of Loring's romantic daughter, Maud? Will the chivalrous Prince Edward restore Peter of Castile to his Spanish throne? Published in 1891 and never out of print, The White Company is a tale of pageantry and piracy, heraldry and hope, published now in an exclusive, annotated edition with the original N.C. Wyeth illustrations in blazing color. Don't you owe it to yourself to read Conan Doyle's favorite book? Get the annotated White Company at wessexpress.com. Ah, well, it's the time for everyone's favorite Sherlockian quiz show. That's right, it's time for Canonical Couplets where we give you two lines of poetry and we ask you to discern which Sherlock Holmes story we are talking about because God knows we don't know. If you were around here the last time, you may recall we gave you this clue. A voyage round the world. It seemed a poor excuse. The slinking furtive figure had become a sad recluse. Bert... <laughs> Over to you to 
<laughs> unwind this this conundrum. Oh, it's easy. That refers to the mysterious visitor in a lodging house that's owned by a mean old burglar. That's the case Watson called The Adventure of the Jailed Codger. <laughs> uh, I would like to give you credit for that. Um, but I'll I take it. I fear that would be encouraging you. <laughs> I don't know oh. if that's the right message to send. Oh. Uh, well, fortunately, uh, our pal Eric Deckers has uh, come to the rescue. He says, I've solved it. It's the story of Godfrey Emsworth's seeming disappearance from his best friend's life as he undergoes some significant personal development. It's the story called, Are You There, Godfrey? It's me, Margaret. <laughs> Wait, I might be confusing that with another story, he writes. It's more likely the adventure of the Blanched Soldier. And yes, Eric, that is exactly right. Our sad recluse was Godfrey Emsworth in The Blanched Soldier. Well, let's see who else was smart enough to uh, join Eric in his discernment there. And from among them all, we will pick a winner by spinning the big prize wheel. And it's going around and landing on number 37. Number 37. And it looks like that is Alicia Shea. Hey, Alicia. Glad to have you back in these parts. We have a prize from the IHO's vaults that we will send your way. It'll be a surprise, so stay tuned for that. Now, we have, uh, I guess, another opportunity here to pick something out of the IHO's vaults, and we thank Tony Katroki for sending in so many prizes for us to use. So thank you, Tony. And now let's get to the clue. Seven in the evening on a lovely summer's day. An exit through Holmes's bedroom. There was evil on the way. If you know the answer to this canonical couplet, stick it in an email addressed to comment that I hear of Sherlock.com with canonical couplet in the subject line. If you are among all of the correct answers and we choose your name at random, you'll win. Good luck. All right. Excellent, 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 excellent. So, 250. That's like a quarter of a millennium. Well, that's in dog years, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but you know, very few, I, I imagine our listeners would be surprised to learn this, but relatively very, very few of our listeners are dogs. But um, That is are, true. You know, we do get a lot of notes from this great gerbil in Sacramento. I must say, I'm always, always thrilled to get... What looks like a text message, anyway, from... Yeah, I mean, you just have to admire the diligence. You know, those little hands, those fingers. I, I hear you. Well, usually they're, they're running around on their own prize wheel, uh, spinning <laughs> around. And um, I thought that's what actually powers the uh, dynamometer here at, uh, <laughs> at IHO's headquarters. Um, well, I, I think there's there's a lot to celebrate. There's a lot to reflect on. And look, if uh, you folks have comments for us or uh, greetings or suggestions or whatever it might be, get it in before we record the next show. Uh, we will give you a deadline of September. No, gosh, it is the end of September. Uh, October 14th, if you have any comments for us about our 250th show or ideas as to what we might talk about or cover in the future, please send it our way at comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. Uh, you can also leave it in a uh, comment directly on the show notes at iHose.co slash iHose249, which is the I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere site. Uh, but it's going to be fun. And I think the last time, Bert, we did a celebratory show was when we reached our 100th show, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I think, I think you're absolutely right. So what do we get each other to mark the 250th anniversary? 250. Well, what, uh, 25 is silver. Gold is uh, 50. 
This so, is our semi-quincentennial, you know. Uh, I think I'm going to need uh, 250 oxygen. <laughs> Something to help me breathe and make it to the next episode. Oh, I like that. That's excellent. Yeah. We need to take some Langerton. <laughs> yeah, folks, if you haven't listened to our trifles <laughs> episode, episode 300 on trifles, by the way, another milestone we celebrated by reviewing a uh, an ad from the Baker Street Journal for a questionable pharmaceutical called Langerton, uh, all about rejuvenation. It was a lot of fun. And uh, we've heard from a few people on that uh, respect. So get over to uh, Trifles. Just search for Sherlock Holmes Trifles in your podcast player or check the show notes here. We'll have a, uh, a link to that episode as well. Well, Bert, I guess this will wrap up the damage report for episode 249. Uh, in the meantime, I remain the completely rejuvenated Scott Monty. And I'm bailing out the engine room. I'm Burt Wolver. <laughs> and together, we say... The, the Games, games of Foot! <laughs> the, the Games, games of Foot! You know, I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes.